our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 2. Go ahead and be turning there with me. Romans, chapter 2. We're going to read verse 12 through 16. Uh, Romans, chapter 2. And, of course, remember these words as we hear them come to us today. Uh, written by the Apostle Paul, but coming to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus spoke them himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Romans 2. 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who did not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a few weeks ago, I was uh, having a lunch with a guy Wonderful man, godly man, thoughtful man. He's a, actually a student uh, in seminary. He's a guy I really respect. And the election came up. And he said to me, you know, I, I, I guess I believe you can be a Christian and still vote for Donald Trump, but that's hard for me to believe. So we continued the conversation. Then about two hours later, I was having coffee with another guy, faithful brother, incredible believer, faithful in ministry. And he said, you know, I guess I believe that Christians can vote for Joe Biden, but that's really hard for me to believe. And I was struck by this. Not that these guys disagreed with one another, two people that loved God, that loved his word, but that they found it so shocking that someone could disagree with them. What they believed and how they saw the world was so clear, it was so right to them, that they struggled to believe that someone could see the world differently. And these are Christians, right? I have some people in the secular world, friends of mine, that are good friends with one another. In 2016, uh, I'm thinking of two friends in particular, one voted for Donald Trump, one voted for Hillary Clinton, and they have not spoken since 2016. So how did we get here? How did we get to this place where the world is so fragile, where the world has become so explosive and so divided? And as Blake mentioned, you know, we had a different plan. And, and I'll be honest, part of me for just kind of some how I wanna be a leader, didn't wanna jump into this. I don't want Christ's covenant to be a reactionary church, right? And I'll even say this too, we're gonna to be talking about things of justice and, and how we apply these things over the next few weeks. But I'm just gonna tell you, you, you can't form your conscience in three weeks, right? I mean, these may be really good sermons, but the formation of a conscience is a lifelong project. It's not something that you can just do it's something that we're always doing as believers. But because of all that's happened this year and, and how fragile the world is right now, 
And I think really, not only just for the hope of the unity within our body, hopefully um, we see ourselves as citizens of a kingdom of Christ above any perishing kingdom of this world, and that will keep us unified, and we're certainly gonna talk about that. But, but more so really how we are as Christians called to interact with the world around us. And so again, my goal over the next few weeks is, is really to, to continue that journey of conscience forming. I don't wanna tell you what to think necessarily about any just justice issue or political issue, but hopefully I can help you think, or hopefully I can teach you how you should be thinking about these things as a Christian. And again, as I said in the introduction, what's so interesting to me about this time is how committed everyone is to their position, yet how different those positions are. And it's all being done and said in the name of justice, right? Now justice, and this is certainly true biblically, justice and righteousness are really the same ideas, right? It, it, they're the same word in the Bible. And so to be committed to justice, to be committed to righteousness is right, but, but how the world is viewing and understanding what those are is so far away from one another. So what I wanna look at today, first of all, I wanna, I think this is helpful for us. I wanna look at four categories, and this is not really gonna be uh, you know, out of scripture, this is kind of just a current events, four secular justice categories that I wanna look at with you. Then I wanna look at true justice, and then finally I wanna look at what justice says of us. So I think this is helpful, four theories of secular justice, or you might say, formas of secular justice theory. And there was a recent essay, and I can't recommend it to you highly enough, that Tim Keller wrote, where he kind of does what we're doing today, where, where he takes scripture and interacts it with these formas um, of secular justice theory. And I, I've got my little whiteboard up here. I wanna start um, kind of walking through this with you, and we'll be using this um, kind of as a, as a guideline. Is it showing up on the screen? Okay. Dude, how, how great are these guys? Can we give them a hand real quick? So what I wanna do is on one side of these formas is kind of a high individualism. On the other side is kind of a high collectivism. And so, you know, he, I think, gives these forms. Of course, the political sphere, the justice sphere, it's, it's much more complex than this. But I do think these formas are helpful. So on one side, kind of the, the libertarian, he gives this this word, and the highest form of justice over here is freedom, right? To be justified or to be in a just society, people, most importantly, should be free. And he uses a lot of the writing of Robert Nozick. And basically this form of justice believes in um, an unregulated market, in a small government. Um, the outcomes of the people are based on their own decision. So we should let people be free, let people kind of find their own way. The second forma, which Keller calls the liberal forma, he's using a lot of the works of John Rawls here, and, and kind of the ethic here is fairness or equity. So we'll call this fairness, right? We, we should work to make the world fair for everyone. So again, this is moving away from the individualism toward the collectivism, um, and Rawls describes um, a more regulated capitalism, right? So there's still a capitalistic system from terms of economy, but it's more regulated. The government has a bigger responsibility. 
Um, and the fairness group would add to the basic freedoms like the freedom of speech, the freedom of property, and the freedom of religion. They would add to that the freedom or the right to education or the right to medical care. John Rawls argues that a society that is most fair and just when there is redistribution of wealth from the most wealthy to the most poor. The third form of government, again, moving again, kind of a further step toward the collectivism, he uses here the thoughts of John Stuart Mill, and it's the utilitarian forma or the happiness forma. And basically the point in this one is justice comes, and all these are you know, forms of justice, justice comes um, when you can do the, the most good for the most people. It's kind of a rule by majority forma, or I would say you could kind of think of this as majority makes right. Um, it downplays the importance of individual rights like freedom um, or even freedom of religion, particularly a minority religion. Um, great policy serves the most people. You're trying to achieve, again, the most happiness uh, for all. One person shouldn't have much more privilege than another person. It's utilitarian, the most happiness for the most people kind of forma. And then the last um, kind of form here, and this is kind of all the way on the collective side, is the postmodern um, side or, or, you know, the, the form here of, or the, the goal of justice in this is power, right? That everyone is equally empowered. Um, and you've heard a lot about this recently. Um, some of the thought of this, you know, comes from the thinking of Karl Marx, but it's, it's, it's kind of regrown up in, in postmodern critical theory. And this would say that a just society subverts the power of dominant groups in favor of the oppressed. Um, justice, there would be no group with more power than another. Keller writes in the summation of this, I think we have this on the screen, the explanation of all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in culture or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. So this has much more to do with group identity than any sort of individual identity. Um, Things like race, gender, sexual orientation, these are primarily um, what define us, again, according to this theory of justice. And even things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, individual property, these can be barriers to a just society. Now, I know that this is not complete, right? There's um, a lot of different dots along the way. But I, I do think it's somewhat helpful. I think when you kind of hear cries of justice that are going on right now, they tend to nod toward one of these formas or another. Again, everyone is calling for justice, right? Everyone is saying, can't you see that this is right? But where people are landing in those calls are incredibly far from one another. And you may resonate with one of these over another, right? You may be thinking, well, I'm more over here. My parents were there. My friends are over there. But as Christians, we must remember that all of these, though some are more perfect than others, all of these are secular theories of justice. They're primarily, and we as Christians are primarily not governed by any of them. Now we can interact with them, but we must realize foundationally 
that, that none of these are primary in our lives. So what I want to do now is take a look at true justice and a little bit of how we got here. Now, in the Enlightenment, David Hume and other thinkers basically started saying that you don't need some sort of external voice to discover what is just and right and true. Those things are intuitive to people, right? Those can be kind of self-discovered. And I've actually heard this form. I've given the argument to a lot of people, how do you know that that's right? Or how do you know that that's true? And they'll just say, you've heard this, because it is, right? Because everyone knows this, because everyone agrees on this. And of course, as we see, that's not the way the world works. But I do think there's something to this. And I kind of think this is what we see in Romans 2. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, I think this is a very important thing for us to understand. What Paul is saying here is that in every human, there is some sense of justice. There is some sense of right and wrong. Now, because of sin, and this is what we also have to understand, it's all distorted, right? No one naturally perfectly understands justice or right and wrong, but there's some sense in every person, even the worst person you know, okay? Think of the worst person you know. Even in them, they have some sense of morality, some sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, you may say, hold on, Jason, that's not true. I know this guy, and he is the worst, right? He will lie and steal and cheat, and you know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't think anything about it. He's not bothered by it at all. He doesn't have a conscience. He, the law is not written on his heart. And here's what I would say. Maybe you do know a guy like that. Maybe you know someone that's so vile and so self-centered that they can cheat and lie and do all these things. But here's the deal. As soon as you lie to him, as soon as you cheat him, you know what he'll say to you? He won't say, oh, there's moral relativism, whatever. You know what he'll say? That's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. He will appeal to a law out there somewhere. He will appeal to this idea of conscience. And again, you may think that people over here are crazy. You may think that people over here are crazy. But I believe that in all of these camps, actually, something helpful is being said. Some reflection of what is just is being said, yet in all of them, there are holes. And I think this is where David Hume and Enlightenment thinkers really got it wrong. The reason that they thought justice and right and wrong was so natural to people was during the Enlightenment, there was a Christian superstructure around them that helped frame the way that most people saw the world. But as that structure is collapsing, as that structure is going away, now th this, this intuition of the heart really can lead you anywhere. It can deceive you in any different direction. This conversation, though, is not, um, it's not, it's not new. Uh, Mike Parsons, who some of y'all here is a member here, he and I were talking about Plato's Republic the other day. 
And in Plato's Republic, uh, there's, Plato writes about a lot of things. It's this Socratic discourse. But one of the things that he writes about that's been famous in kind of Western thought and philosophy is this idea of forms. And of course, this is, he was writing this before Jesus. He was writing this 2,400 years ago. But basically he said, look, everything that we experience and see in the world is a shadow. It's an image of the true form or the, the true good. It's interesting that Plato recognized this. He didn't know what he was saying, but really what he was saying, what he was describing is the kingdom of God. The truth is, is there is a true form, right? There is a true good. There is something that is right. There, there is truth that exists in the world. And that is ultimately and rightly known in the kingdom of God. And I think this is so helpful for us. In the kingdom of God, no one will feel marginalized. Everyone will feel empowered. But in the kingdom of God, we'll be able to celebrate one another's differences and how we're unique and how we're called to different things. There'll be a sense of individual life. In the kingdom of God, we'll understand fairness and equality. People will fully be realized and be happy. In the kingdom of God, it's interesting. All of the things that these formas of secular justice are kind of chasing after, they all come together. They don't seem so far apart from each other. They seem united. Yet down here in the kingdom of man, <laughs> they couldn't be farther apart. Now, as Christians, if we, like Plato, want to find the true good, we want to find the true right, what we need is somebody who knows what is good and right who's not persuaded or under the power of any sort of political party, what we need is somebody like that who is all wise and all powerful and all good to start speaking to us. And the good news for you and for me is that God has spoken. And the Bible has a lot to say to us about what is good and right and true and beautiful. So as we continue this, what I wanna do here, and again, this is a 10-year project, right? I can't form your conscience in one sermon. Man, if I could, that'd be awesome. But I can't. And that's why you gotta come to church every week. That's why you get in community groups with other people and work these things out. That's why we want you reading the Word of God every day. But what I wanna do right now is just give you some themes in Scripture. As you think about what is just and right, what do we see in Scripture, let me just give you a couple of themes. One principle that I think we see in the Bible is community and stewardship. I'm kind of putting these two together. So in the Bible, we do see people with wealth and power and personal property. That's all throughout the scripture, even into the New Testament. But righteousness is always pushing those people not toward the further accumulation for them, the sake of themselves, but for accumulation for the sake of stewardship. There's an understanding in the biblical worldview that your life is not your own and your possessions are not ultimately yours. They ultimately belong to God. So for example, in the early church, you see Christians who were being persecuted and were losing their jobs, but other people in their community who had jobs and had land and had wealth 
were selling that land. They, in a sense, they were, they were limiting their personal accumulation for the sake of the community. The gleaning laws of the Old Testament are also a really interesting example of this. Deuteronomy 24. The gleaning laws basically told landowners to not maximize profits by collecting everything you possibly could in your field, but rather to leave some, to leave some of the harvest, to leave some of the olives or the grapes or whatever you had, to leave some for the poor. Now, what's interesting about this is that the poor were then expected to go and collect, right? So there was some individual responsibility, but also this pushing toward stewardship and toward community. The point is that all throughout the Bible, though we see individual property and individual responsibility as we're going to later talk about, there's an understanding of stewardship, that these things are ours, not for necessarily our own benefit, but to steward for the sake of God, to steward as we live in community. Bruce Waltke in his excellent commentary on the book of Proverbs says this, and I think it's so helpful. The righteous, this is kind of a summary statement, the righteous or the just are those willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are those willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. So we see community and stewardship. Another thing that we see throughout the Bible is what I'm just calling, again, it was hard for me to like capture all of these in words. So you see like a lot of and, sorry, I kind of used, I tried to do four, I really kind of did eight. But anyway, but sanctity and dignity or dignity, there is this idea of imago Dei in scripture. Each one of us, and I want you to hear this, each one of us, every human life has been made in the image of God. And that's incredibly powerful to think about. Do we, do we have the picture here? My, that's my granddad right there, okay? Edwin Kellis is his name, okay? John Kellis, Rainer's actually first name is Edwin. So this guy got some naming rights. But he died uh, in, I think, ni- 1974. It was right ahead of my mother's junior year of college. And so I never met him. But he, my mom kept this picture always. This was the last picture she had of him. And she always had this picture and it was precious to her. Why? Because it said something about her father. It imaged her father. And I just want you to hear this in in the same way, but even in a much more explosive way, every human life images something about God and is precious to him and should be precious to us. There is image of God in every life. There is dignity in every human life. And if this is true, then it matters how we treat one another. In in law, in the Old Testament law, of course, there were special provisions for the people of Israel, for the descendants of Abraham, but there was always provision for the foreigner, for the sojourner in their land. There were laws against bribery and unfair wages, any law that, any, anything that people might do to take advantage of one another. In the New Testament, we always see Jesus pushing against racial divisions or class divisions or cultural divisions, something we else we see in the New Testament, which I think is fascinating, is this, this command to love your enemies, even those who persecute you, treat them well. I think we need to hear this. You know, in a world, um, 
where people are so critical and so vile as Christians, even someone who disagrees with you, and again, it's not not that we can't critique or not that we can't point out if someone has a, a major error, of course we need to be doing that, but do you show them dignity in the, in the process? Do we speak to and about other people as if they were made in the image of God? And because as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of every human life, and because as Christians, we understand that people are prone to take advantage of the weak, we also believe a third thing that we see throughout the Bible is advocacy and order. Again, I'm gonna talk about both of these together. Proverbs 31, eight and nine says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless. See that they get justice. And throughout the Bible, we see a concern for the vulnerable that we're called to. And again, it's not that the rich and the powerful are any less in the sight of God. It's, it's not that so many of these commands is because God doesn't value those who have success. It's just that the rich and the powerful can advocate for themselves. They don't in the same way need an advocate. So are we advocating for those who are in need, for those who cannot speak for themselves? for the very young, for the unborn child, for the child of an immigrant, for the very old, for the prostitute or prisoner or outcast of society. You know, it's interesting that in Matthew 25, the ones who Jesus identifies with are the small, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, those in prison, you came to me Not not you came and you did these things and I was happy about that. No, you came to me. You advocated for me. And part of biblical advocacy too is advocating for those who are being abused by others, advocating for those who are being taken advantage of by others. And, And one of the ways that we do this is through our laws, is through our justice system, right? We see this all throughout the Bible. This is one of the ways that we are actually advocating for one another, an orderly world that doesn't just allow people to run wild because in a fallen world, people will abuse one another. They will take advantage of one another. We certainly see this throughout the Old Testament, great warnings against the wrongdoer to keep the wrongdoer at bay, but we also see it in the New Testament, Romans 13. Paul writes, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now here, Paul is recognizing that actually one of the best ways that God cares for us and that we care for one another is the sword of the government. So again, together, we provide this for one another. Now, of course, no system of justice is perfect, but because we care about one another as Christians, we should strive to make these systems more perfect, more just, more right. And of course, verse five in Romans 13 basically says, all of this reminds us of God's ultimate justice against the wrongdoer. So we've talked about Uh, a sense of community or stewardship that we have. We've talked about a sense of dignity that every human life has, that every human life is reflective in some way of God. 
We've talked about our advocacy to one another, especially those who are prone to be taken advantage of by others. And finally, responsibility. Now the Bible, man, God's word is so helpful and so balanced. So responsibility, remember a few weeks ago when I talked about, we were in the Galatians 6 and I was talking about the different types of weights that we carry and one was bare, which was a weight that was too heavy and we didn't bear that alone, but then the other one was fortion, which is kind of our own personal weight that we had to carry. The Bible, in terms of responsibility, kind of talks about individual and collective responsibility in the same way. There's individual responsibility all throughout the Bible. Um, We see, for example, in the laws of Deuteronomy that uh, children, that the punishment of children, the punishment of parents are separate from one another, each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Each one has to carry the burden of his own sin. In the New Testament, we see obviously responsibility for sin and righteousness, but also the responsibility just for livelihood. Paul honors the principle of the Thessalonians. If anyone does not work, he should not eat. So we see individual responsibility and accountability throughout the Bible, even people in difficult situations, right? The the word of God recognizes that everyone's situation is not necessarily their fault, but even if they are in a difficult situation, they are held accountable for their righteousness before a holy God. But also in the Bible, we see corporate responsibility. Remember the story of Achan in Joshua 7. Uh, after, after the people of Israel had plundered Jericho, Achan took what he should not have, and his whole family was put to death because of his sin. Why? Because they had a responsibility for the formation of his character. Remember the Ten Commandments. When God is giving the Ten Commandments about not making a graven image, what does he say? I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Why? Well, again, I think before you say God's not fair, I think it's because if you're worshiping idols in your home, your children are gonna be prone to idolatry. Their children are gonna be prone to idolatry. The third and the fourth generation do what they see the first and the second generation doing. There is a corporate responsibility. We are not solely individuals. The Bible, even to the first point, is always calling us into community. Now, again, I I could spend so much time on this. We've gone through like secular justice theory and biblical justice in like 20 minutes, right? So again, these are 10-year projects. These are huge projects. And again, my, my hope today is not to so much tell you what to think, but to ask you, how are you thinking about these things? What is influencing you? What is framing your understanding of justice? Have you ever thought to yourself, okay, how do I understand what what God has to say to me in Christ in terms of what it means for how I understand what is right and wrong and good in society? Or are we just carried along by the winds of the day and by the world around us? Are we truly framed? Are we, are we the kind of people that are framed by God's word, by what God has revealed to these things? Now, next week, we're gonna talk about how we as a church can live less on this axis and more on this axis. How we as a church, as citizens of the kingdom of God, can help to see these things rightly as God sees them. And we're also gonna look at the consequences 
of, as Christians, behaving wrongly, <laughs> behaving as the world does. So that's next week. But the last thing I wanna look at today is what justice says of us, what justice says to us. Now in Romans 1, 2, and 3, again, I know I didn't spend a ton of time in Romans 2 today, but what Paul is doing in those first few chapters of Romans, he's, he's, he's setting up something. He's, he's making an argument. And this is all about the conscience. Um, it's all about the human conscience. It, the conscience actually, sometimes it can lead you to the knowledge of truth, but without revelation, right? Without this, the conscience or the human heart, you may call it, can actually be deceiving. Look at verse 14 again. It says, for Gentiles who do not have the law, do my nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. And again, what does all this mean? I believe what, what Paul is saying here is there's sometimes your conscience will help you, right? Sometimes your heart, if you follow your heart, sometimes that'll help you, right? It'll convict you. You'll know, you'll have a sense of right and wrong. But if you only follow your heart without revelation, sometimes it'll justify you. Sometimes it'll excuse bad behavior. But one day we will all be judged by Jesus. And, and by Jesus, I think you could say more rightly, in comparison to Jesus. We'll all be judged by Jesus. We live in a very humanistic age. The, the domineering thought, particularly in Atlanta, is kind of a, a humanistic rationalism. And humanism, secular humanism, I believe is so self-righteous and so self-centered. Self-righteousness says I'm better than you. Self-centeredness says I'm, I'm more important than you. And isn't this our age? Isn't this where people are? People are so judgmental and so quick to judge these days. We so look at each other and without listening say, I can't believe them. I can't believe they would think this way. Can you believe her? Can you believe what he did? Can you believe what she said? The problem with the world in a secular humanistic system, you know what it is? It's always them. It's always the outsider. If only they could think more like me. <laughs> if only they were right like me. If only they were thoughtful like me. It's so self-centered. It's so self-righteous. And I think if you ask Jesus, he would say that self-centeredness and self-righteousness are the two greatest problems that face us in the world. But the Christian ethic as Christians, as gospel-minded people, I want you to hear this. We don't start by blaming them, by blaming her, by pointing the finger there. The, the Christian ethic always begins by saying, no, you know what the big problem here is? It's me. This passage says that God judges the secrets of men by Jesus. You know, a lot of people talk about justice today, but you know what a lot of people don't talk about today? Is God's final justice, the final judgment. People don't talk about that, do they? And I think one of the reasons we don't talk about that is because most of us are pretty privileged people, right? 
if you're really facing injustice, if you're really facing unrighteousness, if you're really oppressed, you think a lot about final justice. When one day God will settle the account. I think of the spiritual songs uh, that came out of American slavery. They're, they're, they're all about final justice. Why? Because these people weren't enjoying any justice. They were hopeful that one day this wrong would be made right. One day this wrong would be settled. One day God would take care of it. He would settle it. And here's the thing. For those of you who have faced great injustice, for those of you who have been deeply hurt, for those of you who there's something in your life that is this bitter scar that, that, that it's hovering over you every day, I want to say this to you. Listen to this. The final justice of God is an incredibly comforting thought because God is going to settle every account. He's going to make everything right. He's going to bring everything into his light and it will all be made right. If you have faced injustice, the final justice of God is incredibly comforting. But if you've been unjust, <laughs> if you've been the one who is unrighteous, the final justice of God is a terrifying thought. And here's the deal. Most of us, I think, think, ah. <laughs> I've done some things that I'm not proud of, but I'm okay. I haven't done anything really that's that bad. Many of you have heard me give this illustration before, but I've heard it many times in my life and it always pins me to the mat. And the Bible says here that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews that God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so I always ask people, what if I could invite all your, what if I invited all your friends, everybody you know, here to the foundry. And you know, these are 85 inch screens. Let's say we got like a 185 inch screen, right? A huge screen. And we showed everybody the movie of your life. And it showed all this, all of the secret thoughts that you've had, all of the secret intentions that you've had, all the deeds that you've done, the good deeds, but also the bad deeds, the good thoughts, but also the mortifying thoughts that you know you've have run through your mind. That it would be a true picture of what's really going on inside of you. Let's say we were to show that movie. Who'd be up for that? And the truth is, I have said this many times, no one's up for that. You would be so embarrassed. You would be so mortified to actually find out how unrighteous you really are. And that's in front of a bunch of unrighteous people. What if the holy God of the universe knew all that about you? Well, here's the deal. He's, he does. <laughs> He's seen the movie. He knows. Who of us want to be judged standing next to the righteousness of Christ? But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is righteous. He's perfectly just. I love to think about Jesus. He, he, he so understands who we are as individuals and how we've been made different from one another and how we have different skills and talents, but he so cares about the oppressed. He so cares about us treating one another with fairness. He so cares about our happiness and joy. He rightly understands all of this and he always lived perfectly in line with his father's will yet 
the cross, the story of the cross is about Jesus taking on all of our injustice, all of our unrighteousness, paying the price for our sin on our behalf. And here's the beauty, and giving us, if you're in Christ, giving us his righteousness. You can either be judged by Christ or in Christ. You can either be judged next to Christ, by him in comparison to him, in which you will all come up and I will all come up wanting, or you can be judged in Christ. That is the offer of the gospel. And you know what he says to sinners like us? Come to me. Come to me. Trust in me. Trust in me. Trust in me. Trust in me. And so as we close today, I want to invite you in one of two directions. For those of you who are here today, and this is new to you, this gospel message, this hope that we have that Jesus has stood in our way. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about, that Jesus has taken on our sin and that he offers us forgiveness and life and hope. For those of you who are hearing this, and it's a new message to you, I would invite you here in just a few moments. We're gonna sing a song. I'm gonna be standing in the back. Please come to me. I'd love to talk to you about what it really means to surrender your life to Jesus and come and follow him. And some of our other pastors will be there. If you see me talking to somebody, come and talk to me. But for those of you who this is not a new message, you believe this, but it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to find our way tossed by the winds of this world. And we need to recenter ourselves in Christ. I wanna invite you to, with me, share a meal. It's a meal that Jesus gave us on the night that he was betrayed. And he took bread before his disciples and he broke it before them. And he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. And then he took a cup and he said to them, this is a new covenant that's been made for you in my blood. And the new covenant represents this. It represents that, that we can approach God, not based on our righteousness or lack of righteousness, but we can approach God in Christ. So as these elements are being passed out, hold on to them. If you are a believer, if you've made that known, if you are known as someone walking with the Lord, if you're not, if you're here and you're just kind of figuring it out, either come talk to me, I'd love to talk to you, or just let the elements pass by, but let's hold on to these elements. We'll take them here corporately after we sing.